You may have noticed the title of our message and the bulletin already. It's a parable of judgment. And then it asks the question, your genuine response. And if that's not enough to arrest your attention, I don't know what would be. And we know that a genuine fear of God and those who probably uh, grasp the reality of his impending judgment on all of mankind is, is something that should get our attention. Hebrews 10.31 says that it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Psalm 7 verses 10 and 11 express it this way. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. All one needs to do is simply look at our surrounding world in which we live, and we can witness the continued rejection, the ongoing hostility that is uh, pointed at Christ as the truth of the gospel and the reality of who he is is suppressed. It is a, a suppressed truth that is being lived out in unrighteousness, and it continues to get amplified as we see the moral decline of our country, which doesn't stop at our borders. It isn't just a U.S. thing. It's a worldwide thing. It's epidemic throughout the world that we see people who are living in utter rejection and defiance of who God is, shaking their fists at God. This may be hard for us to get our minds around, but they say that Europe is 50 years ahead of us in terms of moral decline. Frightening to think about. It isn't anything new, however. And the same culture of unbelief that exists in our world today, though the consequences might be a little bit more pronounced, is the same culture of unbelief that existed in Christ's day. And how did the Lord Jesus Christ respond? He faithfully ministered and continued to press forward in his proclamation of the gospel of God. And it's fair to say that Jesus spent just as much time, if not more, preaching the gospel of God to those who were religious as much as he did to those who had no concept or understanding about who God was. The religious who had everything figured out, the right view of God, and they were all set. They didn't need to hear what Jesus had to say. And time and time again, we see Jesus confronting the hearts of the religious scribes and Pharisees who proudly marched around promoting their false system of religion that was based on a yoke of righteousness, works righteousness, obedience to the Torah, to the Mishnah, to the Talmud, or any other writing that they could come up with and add additional weight and responsibility and restrictions to their corrupted system. The disciples and those who have been following Jesus have seen him repeatedly rebuke and correct the religious with his words and actions, only to have the religious parliament respond with greater contempt and resistance and accusation. How bad did the accusations get? Well, you'll recall two Sundays ago when we studied the unpardonable sin in which they re responded by accusing Jesus as an agent of Satan. He was under the influence of Beelzebul. He was evil. He was led by uh, an evil spirit, not the Holy Spirit. And so... This, as we studied, was an unpardonable sin. It was blasphemy at the highest level, considering the full disclosure of Christ that they were receiving firsthand. So continuing with the theme of judgment today, we've come to this first recorded parable that Jesus teaches in the Gospel of Mark. And as our title indicates, it's a parable of judgment. And the Lord uses it to reveal the varying heart responses to the Gospel of God. For those who would be allowed to understand it, this parable would also help them as they went out to evangelize to consider the soils of the human heart and their preparation or lack of to receive it. 
Yet Jesus was also calling all of his listeners to consider the soil of their own hearts. And it's the same exhortation for us this morning. What soil does my heart and your heart reflect? How has my heart responded? And how is it continuing to respond to the gospel of God? Is it hard? Is it shallow? Is it compromised in any way? Or is it fertile and bearing much fruit? Let's tackle the text together to see what God's word reveals about our hearts in this amazing parable. And we're going to start in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm actually going to read all the way through verse 20. This is what it says in the New American Standard, starting in verse 1. He began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched because it had no root. It withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked it and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and a hundredfold. And as he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was done or alone, his followers along with the 12 began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil, and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Well, that was a passage that was just a little bit longer than what we're normally used to, right? This is a massive text. And so I had the challenge all week of wrestling with it, and I was trying to figure out how can I break this down and communicate it so that we capture and continue to capture the main idea of what it's trying to communicate. It was a challenge. And I wanted to be efficient. I wanted to be time sensitive. And in the end, I just realized the best thing to do was to outline it and to preach it. And so that's what I did. And that's what my plan is. And we will... Uh, spend this Sunday and most likely next Sunday tackling this text because um, we're just going to go for it. We're going to just see how much ground that we can cover today. We do have communion at the end of the service as well. And so again, we're going to cover as much as we can. Well, as your sermon 
notes indicate, today we're going to look at four factors from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, as Jesus preaches this parable of judgment. And in your notes, you'll notice that there's the setting, the sower, the soils, and the significance. Each factor is important to understand as Jesus uses this parable to reveal different heart responses to the gospel. And all of our hearts will be exposed. As we'll see, this parable challenges you and I to either deny or affirm the presence of genuine faith in our lives, the same way that it did when Jesus was preaching it in person, live to the audience. Same application for us today. Let's start with the first factor, which we'll call the setting. Verse 1 reveals that Jesus is teaching again, which was a trademark of his ministry, and it shares that he's right by the Sea of Galilee. The large crowd that is present, it presents an obstacle as well as an opportunity. It's an obstacle because so many people are swarming him that it's making it difficult for Jesus to teach the group at large. But it also opens up an opportunity to do that very thing. The obstacle was finding enough space for the opportunity to preach and minister the gospel to a crowd primarily of unbelievers. And by now, Jesus is seeing the fickle nature of the crowd that continues to press him for their physical needs while disregarding their spiritual need. So this is important for us to see because it wasn't only the scribes and the Pharisees who had hard-heartedness and who were unbelieving, but it was also the rampant unbelief of the massive crowd that only had an interest in physical things and seeing his miracles and getting their needs served while the message of the gospel was not embraced. I found it interesting that Jesus had to separate himself physically so that he could minister to people spiritually. He was left with no choice but to get onto a boat that would serve as a floating pulpit. And you may recall back in Mark 3, 9, where Jesus tells them to go ahead and have a boat prepared in case the crowd becomes overwhelming. And this seems to be a fulfillment of that request. Exactly where Jesus taught cannot be said for sure, but researchers have suggested that there's a possible location on the Sea of Galilee where a natural amphitheater exists outside of Capernaum where the land slopes down to a bay. Israeli scientists have named it the Bay of Parables because it can transmit a human voice effortlessly to several thousand people on shore. It has been suggested that this is the largest um, crowd, ministry crowd, that Jesus has embraced up to this point. It has also been suggested that due to the rich farming soil that surrounded Galilee, that on that slope that went down into that amphitheater, that there could have been people who were actually out there sowing while this conversation is about to take place. Verse 2 says, And he was teaching them many things in parables. The Lord's use of parables is very significant. And we're going to have an opportunity under our fourth factor to spend time talking about its significance, but for uh, their significance. But for now, we need to first understand what a parable is, and second, why Jesus was using them. First, what is a parable? In your mind, as you think about that, what is a parable? Some have claimed that they're heavenly stories with earthly meanings, while others oversimplify them merely as comparisons or illustrations. The truth is that the Greek word for parable and its Hebrew counterpart are very broad terms and can be used for anything from a proverb to a riddle, as well as an illustration, a contrast, and even a short story. Here in this context, Jesus is using the parable as an illustration. And oftentimes that's how parables are used. I like to call them come parables when, when you see them, because it's saying that a spiritual truth is like this in a physical reality. Second, why was Jesus using them? He was using parables at this point as a form of judgment. And though this is the first recorded parable in Mark, it isn't the first time Jesus is using them. If you look back at Mark 3.23, Jesus is in this conflict with the scribes who are attributing his works to Satan. 
And it says to, that, that he, in that verse, 323, that he's speaking to them in parables. And this allowed Jesus to reveal spiritual truths to those who were sincerely seeking him and to conceal spiritual truths from those who were so hard-hearted like the scribes and Pharisees and also from those who were seeking him under false pretenses, which were many of the people that were in the, the crowd that continued to follow him. So this is the parable. It's a parable of judgment. And now that we have a firm grasp on the setting, let's turn our attention to the second factor, the sower. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. Interesting, this passage, or this parable, excuse me, starts with the summons to listen or hear, both at the beginning and the end, starting in verse 3, then in verse 9. And commentator James Edwards says that this command underscores its urgency and importance, similar to Israel's foundational confession. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In Deuteronomy 6.4, hearing is the only possible way of understanding Jesus' parables. And then he even makes a reference to the, the good news and the feet of those who bring the gospel to bear in Romans 10.17. He finishes by saying, hearing, or better, heeding, requires engagement and receptivity to what is said. Very important. Jesus then uses another word to try to capture their attention, which is translated, behold. And this would draw attention to the common picture of the sower as something that deserves careful consideration, indicating that there's a deep spiritual lesson in this familiar scene. Jesus then introduces the sower. Everyone in the ancient Near East would have understood who, who or what a sower was. It was a person who basically uh, wore a leather belt uh, around their waist and they would have wheat or barley seed or perhaps some other uh, form of seed, but wheat and barley were very common. And they would take this pouch that they would have, much like a fanny pack, you know? Any fanny pack fans out there? I've got a couple of brave people raise their hands. All right, we'll go with the fanny pack. That's really what it was. This is a fanny pack. And they packed a bunch of seed in that fanny pack. And they, they would go out and they, they would take the seed and they would, they would scatter it by hand. Just, and, and there was a little bit of a rhythmic motion to how they, they scattered the seed because it was very important that it was scattered evenly. In farming today, they actually use a special piece of equipment. I grew up on a farm and it's called a planter. And so uh, on these big pieces of equipment, they have these planter boxes, and you can actually take um, corn, whatever the seed that you're using, um, all, all the seed, you, you dump it into one of the planter boxes, and then this machine is designed specifically to go out and to spread it evenly over the top of the soil. These machines are... Again, designed to spread and sow the seed evenly and consistently throughout the large fields. So in our setting, in the ancient Near East, they didn't have access to this equipment. So they had to rely on humans, uh, these sowers who would go out, and an experienced sower would, of course, be able to, to spread it evenly and consistently. And it was very hard work. They would have to go out. They would have to deal with the elements, the, the, the scorching sun, the rocks, the weeds, sometimes encounter even animals, wild animals, as obstacles that would interfere with the sowing process. And depending on the size of the field, they would actually have a lot of ground to cover. I mean, some of the fields were massive. And so I would liken it to, if you're one of our young men and you know what it's like, mowing lawns in California doesn't take you very long. found that out. But if you grew up in the Midwest, we had some pretty large uh, uh, lawns that you would have to mow. And if you didn't have a riding tractor, you had to push mow that thing. And I would compare sowing seeds to, to basically push mowing a golf course. All right? It was just never ending. It took a great deal of time to cover all the ground. 
So here in this parable, the sower is actually best understood as the Lord Jesus Christ as the primary sower. Of course, anyone else who puts forth God's word, whether in preaching or in personal exchange, could also be considered a sower. But here in this instance, it was Jesus who was out scattering gospel seeds and teaching God's word nonstop. He was dealing with many of the same obstacles as he preached from synagogue to synagogue and traveled from village to village. He was dealing with the the scorching sun and the elements that would sometimes try to impede his process. And he was tirelessly preaching and spreading God's word evenly and consistently throughout the land. Jesus, much like an agricultural sower, who would have a firm grasp on the physical landscape as well as the obstacles, our Lord reveals that like a a sower, he was able to see the landscape and the obstacles as he was out preaching. The ones that he's encountered as he was sowing seeds and preaching the truths of the gospel to the people. This brings us to our third factor. We're looking at four factors from Mark 4, 1 through 20, as Jesus preaches this parable of judgment about four heart responses to the gospel that challenge you and I to deny or affirm the presence of genuine faith in our lives. We've grasped the setting. We've considered the sower who's now in place. Now let's focus on the soils. Starting in verse 4, Jesus shares the sower encountered four different types of soil, which I have listed in your notes, and we're going to call them the impenetrable soil, the shallow soil, the compromised soil, and the fertile soil. Let's start with the impenetrable soil. Verse 4 says, As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Important to note in this passage is that the seed is consistent. And as we're going to learn eventually, it's, it's gospel seed, right? The message doesn't change. There's a consistency with the message. And the same was true. The seed that they would be spreading, the seed was all the same. You need to make sure that we see this. But its productiveness was determined by the place where it landed. And the, the wayside was either a road or the edge of a field or footpath crossing through or around the open field. In the sower's efforts to cover the whole field, some of the grain scattered and fell along the trampled wayside where the soil can be described as compact or hard or the word that we're using, impenetrable. Those of you who've ever been on a flight across the country, as you get across the Midwest uh, especially, you notice what when you're up there, sometimes you can even see the layout of the fields from the airplane, right? You see them mapped out. What are they surrounded by? Roads. That's how people got around. That's how the farm equipment was actually moved, and that's, that's how it's used today. Well, it was no different then. They... They had uh, paths so that people could travel through or around the fields. And what would happen is when these seeds were being scattered generously, some of them would end up on the hard path. And what would happen to them, in this case, we're told that a bird uh, comes by and snatches them and eats them. In Luke's account, it shares that some of the seeds were crushed, which makes sense because people who had been walking on the path, their feet would have crushed them. Maybe there were horses and carriages and other things that they were pulling behind the animals that would have crushed the seed. The second type of soil that the sower encountered was shallow soil. Verses 5 and 6 describe it this way. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. The rocky or stony ground that is mentioned here isn't talking about um, dirt or soil with rocks on top of it. 
nor is it even talking about soil with rocks mixed into it. What was common in the region and in the ancient Near East was that there was a bedrock of limestone that would exist underneath the topsoil. And so in instances where there was only just a matter of a few inches of soil sometimes, what would happen is the seed would get scattered and it would take root and it would start to germinate. And the roots would travel down and eventually they would run into literally a brick wall. They would run into a limestone wall and they wouldn't be able to travel any further. And after exhausting any water that they had access to, when, when the plants popped up out of the ground, they would be exposed to the elements of the world. In this instance, the scorching sun and heat dried them out because, again, their roots had no depth and they didn't have access to sufficient water. Well, the third type of soil we'll call the compromised soil. And this soil had company. Verse 7 portrays it this way. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Here the soil was compromised because it was occupied with thorns and roots of weeds that were actually already embedded in the soil. And they had similar practices. Sometimes would light, the, the, light fires to go ahead and cl clear out areas so that they could have access to the dirt and to the field. And oftentimes that wouldn't take care of the root. And so what would happen is the seed would end up germinating again on this soil. And the, the roots that were already existing from the thorns, they were already in place. And so it turns into this little bit of a competition uh, between the, the roots of the wheat, barley, whatever was planted, and the roots of, of the thorns. And naturally, this was not a good situation. So the seeds would actually, um, because of the, the roots and thorns, it, it says that when the, the uh, thorns popped up, they would actually be choked out. And, you know, I, there's the, that word in the Greek can actually be translated crowded around, which is probably a more fitting picture. Because the roots of the thorns were already established deep in the soil, not only did they steal the water, but the thorn bushes would crowd out the light from the, the blooming wheat and barley. And anyone who has ever done much gardening, and I know being in California, there's a limit on um, having large gar <laughs> gardens in our huge backyards, right? Not very common. That was, that was a joke. Thank you, James, for the courtesy laugh. <laughs> but, you know, anyone who's done any type of gardening knows this is the case, right? You better get the weeds out when they pop up. And you better get them out at, at the root. Because what happens if you don't? Man, isn't that amazing? They're, they're cancerous. I mean, they'll just spread. And what is the, the threat that they pose? Well, not only are they going to steal valuable water from the vegetation, but you, you know what's going to happen? They're, they're also going to grow up and they're going to hover over because weeds grow very quickly at an accelerated rate. And they're going to steal the light and they're going to shade the, the plant that is struggling and trying to grow. So it's describing a very compromised situation here. And those of us with, uh, who've had gardens full of weeds, we, we know how compromised they are. Here, the third soil was compromised. Finally, we have the fourth soil, which we'll call the fertile soil. Verse 8 depicts it this way. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. And this is the fourth description that we see of the seeds being sown into different soils. And I want you to notice the difference in the words that come immediately after the seeds fell in each occurrence. It's interesting. With the first soil, it says that the seed fell beside or along. 
The second seed fell on. The third seed fell among. And here in the fourth occurrence, it says that the seed fell, what's your translation say? Into, into good soil. So interesting, different Greek words that are being used to describe the reality of what's taking place that we don't want to miss. And that one's significant. Actually, the third and fourth uh, um, soils share the same Greek word that follows the word fell. Because remember, even in that soil, it was able to germinate amongst the, the thorns, right? And then it was compromised. This is important to see because it means that the seeds were immediately able to burrow down into the soil. And we're told that they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. What do these numbers mean? Well, the soil was so fertile, it was so rich, it was so clean and deep that it would produce an abundant harvest. Just to give you an idea of what Jesus is saying numerically here, an abundant harvest would have produced about a tenfold return. Okay? That, would, that would have been a really good harvest. It was usually less than ten. And here, Jesus is telling him that the crop yielded and produced three, six, even ten times the normal amount of a good harvest. Now, I think many of us can see how Jesus is using this real physical illustration to convey spiritual truths. And for believers, we, we can see this. Yet for those whose hearts weren't born again, and those who didn't have the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit right now, all that they can see is a lesson in agriculture. To the natural man, this is merely a survey of soils conveying truth about farming during the time of Christ, which leads us to our final and most important factor. It says, oh, excuse me, we have processed the, the, the setting of the parable, the sower in the parable, and we've gained a glimpse and insight of the soils in the parable and now we need to get to the heart of the passage, which is the significance of the parable. Starting in verse 9, Jesus again extends the invitation to hear. It says, and he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a very interesting statement used eight times throughout the New Testament. And I often wondered if people were sometimes looking around, maybe if there was an earless group that was in attendance, um, wondering, like, what does he mean, he who has ears to hear? Do we, all, we all have ears. I think there would have been a general understanding. Spirit-filled believers today have the privilege of seeing that Jesus was referring to those who had spiritual ears to receive the spiritual lessons that he was trying to impart. His disciples and many of the other followers failed to understand the significance of the parable. So verses 10 through 13 offer some very critical insight for us. I want to read them again just so that we can, we can have them fresh in our mind. Mark says, starting in verse 10, as soon as he was alone, his followers along with the 12, good, we can stop right there to realize that there were, there were more uh, disciples and followers of Christ than just the 12. And good, good to take note of. We talked a little bit about that when they chose uh, and replaced Matthias, you'll recall, right? There were other disciples. And they began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, get but those who are outside get everything in parables. Verse 12, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Verse 13, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The 
The disciples are basically showing up after he's taught this lesson and they're asking a simple question. Why, why parables? Okay, and, and what are they about? And here Jesus is going to explain their purpose and his answer also helps us understand the significance of the doctrine of illumination and the role that Christ's explanations played during this dispensation or period of time. Allow me to set the stage and frame it just with a couple questions. Do the disciples understand this parable? Yes or no? No, they don't. Do the disciples have the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit at this point? No, they don't. In fact, who is the person that's being, who's the only man right now who's being spirit-led on the scene? The Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so it should come at no surprise to us that in order to spiritually understand what Jesus is saying in the parables, that the disciples need the Lord's help. They need his illumination, his guidance. And the Bible makes it clear that the natural man does not understand the things that are spiritually appraised for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. It says this explicitly in 1 Corinthians 2.14 as the Apostle Paul spoke of his reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Illumination is one of the greatest blessings that we receive from the Lord in salvation, and it's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. To illuminate means to have something brightened with light and made clear to the eyes. Simply put, illumination in the spiritual sense is turning on the light. It really is. All of a sudden, the light clicks on, and it makes sense. The Apostle Paul even prayed for the saints at Ephesus, asking that the eyes of their heart be enlightened so that they may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe in Ephesians 1, 18 and 19? And Paul was not praying for new revelation, but for spiritual illumination of truth that the believers in Ephesus already knew. What is absolutely remarkable and something that should stir our hearts to praise God, that God has graciously allowed those who are born again today to see and understand the same truths that the Lord's disciples had to actually go directly to him to get explanation for. That is unique. That, that, that's, that's powerful. That is the, the reality for the New Testament believer. And one of the benefits of being sealed with the Holy Spirit that we have the opportunity to read God's word and to have it illuminated for us. You ever wonder why unbelievers don't have an interest in reading the Bible? They don't understand it. They they can't understand it in the spiritual sense. They they can't get it. It doesn't make any sense to them. Or, Or should we say the fullness of what it's trying to communicate does not make any sense to them. Yet we have been granted full access to the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. So what does this say about us when we've been privileged to understand it through the Holy Spirit and that it can be illuminated for us at any point in time that you want to pick up your Bible that you have as a true, genuine believer, born-again person, that you can pick up the Scriptures and it is illuminated through the work of the Spirit for you to see and to understand. When I made that connection, when I was studying the, the text, it, it, it convicted me. It really did. Um, you, you know, how oftentimes I'm, I'm picking up my Bible and I have to be prepared to preach on Sunday. So I'm, I'm like, I got uh, something that locks me in to, to, uh, 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 because it's my job to study well, right? 
right? So there's an aspect, and there can even be a temptation that as it relates to me digging into the word, that I'm doing it for the sake of you, for the sake of profession. How convicted I was. When I realized just even from my own heart that I, I'm not picking it up to look and take access to all the other passages of Scripture that are right there, illuminated, ready for me to see and learn and grow in my understanding about who our great God is and who I'm not. It's convicting. And it should be. It should be. And you know, it's been my experience so oftentimes there are just life is hard, right? Are we all in agreement that life is hard? Are we? All right, we're unified in that, right? There's challenges, there's trials, there's circumstances. There are dark clouds that move in, that hover. And it doesn't seem like they're going anywhere sometimes. And I just think about this reality that so often, even in my own struggles, and everyone's got their own set of dark clouds in their forecast. And yet, all the time, God is saying, There's light. I have light right here. You want to dispel some of that darkness? You want to have your heart encouraged? You want to see the truth? You want to see my guidance? You want to see my counsel? You want to see what I have for you? You want me to expand your understanding so that the dark cloud of despair doesn't eclipse the reality of who I am as your great God? I am light. I am light, he tells us. And he gives us the light of his word. He's just waiting for us to turn to it. He's waiting for us to turn to it. And I'm, I'm so encouraged that care groups are starting up and we're going to have the opportunity. And I'm just, I'm excited for my own heart just to see how Romans can provide um, just, just being a, a, a book that is so focused on Christ and the gospel, how it can continue just to provide light. Now, it could also be said that the reason that unbelievers cannot understand the scriptures is that it's serving as a form of judgment as they live out their lives in rebellion against Christ and the gospel. And this was certainly true of the unbelievers that continued to reject the full revelation and disclosure of Jesus Christ and his ongoing proclamation of the gospel. And, and they had him right there in his midst. He was right there saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Take me by the hand. I am the kingdom. Take me by the hand. And this helps explain the expanded purpose of the parables that the Lord provides in verses 11 and 12. Illumination is a gift of God's grace when it is revealed. And Jesus shares this when he said to you, has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. When well, we say they don't have the Holy Spirit, right? But, but, but in, in, in the gracious act of God, the, the truth was allowed to be disclosed and they were able to see the revelation as Jesus, who was being led by the Spirit, was proclaiming the truth and they were granted eyes to see and ears to hear. Those who were given eyes to see and ears to hear understood who Jesus Christ was as Messiah. And this is the same blessing revealed to all New Testament believers. And it's one that Paul actually records, ironically, at the very end of the book of Romans, which we get a study. In Romans 16, 25, and 26, when he wrote, Now to him who, ha who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, 
but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Wow. Wow. So encouraging for us too. Yet for those who reject Christ, who suppress the truth of the gospel in unrighteousness, withholding illumination is a form of God's judgment when we see it concealed. Look at the end of verse 11 and verse 12, which help us to see this reality. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. Mark quotes Isaiah 6, 9, and 10 here in this instance. So fascinating to me that he predicted this form of judgment. D. Edmund Hebert shares this insight about this passage when he writes, Christ's parables served, I want you guys to hear this, Christ's parables served to veil the truth concerning the kingdom as well, as well as to unveil it, depending upon the attitude of the hearer toward him. The attitude of unbelief on the part of those without rendered them unqualified to understand and receive the revelation. The unexplained parables remain to them a veiled mystery. Listen to this. So important. But faith penetrates the veil and grasps the revelation. This parabolic ministry thus served to reveal the inner heart condition of the hearers. Unbelief nullified the divine effort to give them the revelation. And I really, really like the way that Hebert expresses this explanation because it puts the responsibility of unbelief on who? On man. Yet it also allows us to appreciate the gracious gift of faith that penetrates the veil and grasps revelation. And for those of us who have gone out and done evangelism, you have actually seen the veil on display as you're witnessing to people. And you're sharing the gospel. Those that were on the check team when we had all those gospel conversations with, with people in the eve, after the evening sessions. And you're talking to them. And they're asking questions. And you're answering questions. And you're helping them to see the need that the moment is now. That you need to turn to Christ now. You need to repent. You need to cry out. You need to ask him for forgiveness and turn and trust in him so that your heart can be born again. And so oftentimes, you get so close in conversation, and you're talking to people. And in some instances, and this was true with my twin brother when I, when I shared um, the, the gospel with him, he would oftentimes say, this would be his response, I know, I know, I know, I know. And what is my response you don't know. You don't know. If you knew, if you knew, my friend, you would respond right now. You would not take one more step in this life without the eternal protection of the Lord Jesus Christ on your life. You would not take one more step. And this parable helps provide insight when it shares that three out of four soils, 75% are, not going, are going to have a negative response to the gospel, according to our passage. They're going to respond negatively to the gospel, not positively. Why not? Why not? The answer comes in verses 14 through 20 when Jesus provides an explanation of the soils. And that will have to wait until next week because our time is up and we have to celebrate communion. So I'm going to pray and then 
invite the communion team to prepare, invite the worship team to come up, and we're going to go ahead and celebrate communion. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are again so blessed by the illumination of your word. It is light. It is truth. It is conviction. It helps us see the reality of who you are and who we are not. And I pray, Father, that if there is anyone here today that is doubtful of you, who has not committed their life to you, that today would be the day that they would, they would feel the weight and the gravitas of your judgment on them because they are not reconciled with you. And that their, even their physical footsteps would be lethargic and that they would be hard and difficult as a measure of your grace, letting them know that they need to turn to you and cry out for forgiveness. Not for a sin, not for some grievous act from many years ago, but for all of the sin of their life, that they're a sinner. And it's only through your son, it's only through the redemptive work of your son that their heart can be changed, that they can be born again, that they can have the imputed righteousness of Christ credited to their account. Those of us that believe this is our reality, this is what we cling to. This is what we celebrate week after week at our church, a gospel lighthouse. And it's so fitting that we would prepare our hearts to celebrate communion as we focus on this reality. We ask, Father, that even right now, that we could just take a deep look, that every believer here would take a deep look into their heart, into their life, and reflect and prepare to celebrate this ordinance in a worthy manner. Is there unity with you? Is there unity in the body of Christ? Or is there brokenness? And if there's brokenness that we just allow this cup and this bread to pass us this day. So Father, we're excited. We know it's a sweet celebration to have this time together. We pray that you'll bless it, allow us to sing these songs and have our spirits encouraged because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. We give you all the glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.